Ray Bradbury, the science fiction writer, published in 1952 a short story called The Sound of Thunder. The story was, at one level, about time travel, and in this case, time travellers returning to the Cretaceous period to hunt T-Rex. However, the story really was about history, and not about the history of kings and battles, but the interconnection of all things and their impact on history. The Safari Guide from Time Safari Inc. says at one point, perhaps only a soft breath, a whisper, a hair, pollen on the air, such a slight, slight change that unless you looked close, you wouldn't see it. Who knows? Who really can say he knows? We don't know. We're guessing. But until we do know for sure whether our messing around in time can make a big roar or a little rustle in history, we're being careful. The protagonist, Eccles, inadvertently crushes a butterfly 62 million years in the past with monumental consequences in a reconfigured future. Hello, my name is John Leonida, and this is a University of Greenwich history podcast exploring some of the methodological and historiographical issues facing a group of history PhD students, me included, in their research at the university. I hope you enjoy listening. I have with me today uh, three other PhD researchers, all with very different paths to their research questions. But in, in essence, what we are all asking ourselves is, how do we identify the big roar or the little rustle in history? Mandy Barry, if I may come to you first. Your thesis is examining the campaigns for women's suffrage in the London boroughs of Greenwich and Lewisham in the context of a much wider social movement for women's rights. The public and popular narrative for women's suffrage is often dominated by a few key figures, Emily Pankhurst, for example, to the exclusion or diminution of a broader and deeper movement. Where have the readings that we have done in the last few months taken you in your in your research? Well, thanks, John. Um... You're, of course, right that when most people think about um, the suffrage campaigns, they immediately think of the leaders and, in particular, the Pankhursts. But what I'm doing is looking at that wider movement, and so I'm interested not just in the activists but in all women and how uh, the women's movement um, impacted on them. So uh, if I continue with your analogy... um, how many types of, 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 of butterflies were there and, and what was their impact? Um, and so the way our discussions over recent uh, months have helped me um, is primarily to debunk an awful lot of the mystery around historical method and critical theory and to use it with confidence as a toolkit from which you can pick the things that are going to help you tell the story you need to tell. Um, You used a beautiful literary metaphor for history, Um, but for me, I I had a more sort of scientific um, analogy. Um, I was, if I tried to synthesize our discussions, it felt like there were two key elements. One was the the raw material, the sources, the primary 
um, research that we're doing. And the second element is the way we use our creativity. We use that historical method. We use those tools to... Um, to, to create the story. So the two elements are the, are the sources and then secondly, the methods. And the historian's job is how you fuse those two things together. Um, um, so if I just say something about the raw materials, I think one of the sessions that really resonated with me uh, was entitled The Camera Never Lies. And we, we focused particularly on photographic evidence. But I think there was a bigger uh, message there um, in that, you know, you really do have to challenge every kind of source material you use. I remember in that session, we saw some photographs of um, factory workers, uh, women factory workers in India, and, and it looked like a, a reputable employer. But the historian had the good sense to then check medical records. And we actually got a very different picture of what was happening for those women. Um, and uh, with my own work, I immediately thought of um, a, a quite um, commonly seen picture of some suffragettes in Lewisham in front of their banner. Um, and they're not, they're not particularly smartly dressed. They're wearing modest clothing. And it kind of um, questions the narrative that the, the leaders were middle class. Um, in fact, uh, my own research has suggested that most of the leaders locally were teachers, so they were not going to be able to afford these really fancy clothes that the Pankhurst was wearing. And that picture had been in front of my eyes all the time, and there was that evidence there to corroborate what, what, what I'd found from, from other sources. Um, we had the session on materiality, which was whole new territory for me. Um, and I can see that this approach is really interesting and open up new lines of inquiry um, and taking a historian on a very different journey. Um, but I don't think it's going to help me. And I'm obviously open to challenge <clears throat> on this. Um, I, I, if, if I were to do that, my primary sources would be things like the bicycle and the typewriter. But that would be taking me on a very different journey. And I've set out to answer a set of questions. So I think for me, the sources that I've chosen, starting with um, newspapers, diaries, oral history, are going to be more productive than starting that way. Mandy, that, that's interesting. And what you say specifically about the individuals and materiality. Um, I mean, Sebastian, um, you're Sebastian Rose, um, to give you your full title um, and name. You're exploring uh, Indo-European uh, uh, telegraph department in the 19th and early 20th century, and in particular with reference to the British Empire in Iran and the Persian Gulf. At one level, you're embedded in the minutiae, um, much like Mandy. I mean, it's the you know, we, 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 when we talk about empires, we talk about the, the grand narrative. Um, but you're involved uh, in the, the, the minutiae of the individual employees of the Indo-European Telegraph Department. You're butterflies, if, if I may say so. At another le level, you, you have the roar of the British Empire. How do you balance the grand imperial narrative, if there is one, with the micro-history um, that is at the very heart of your work. Thank you, John. I think those two 
observations are correct in my research. And I think one of the ways to do it is through microhistory. And our session on uh, microhistory really brought that to the fore for me. Um, in particular, Amy Stanley's work on maidservants um, from 1600 to 1900, and the way in which she was able to connect very local micro um, histories and stories and narratives to larger global flows and connections. Um, it, with my own research, I think what uh, one of the things I've found is how individual spaces within the telegraph infrastructure impact the whole network itself. And I was struck with Amy's work, um, how unquotidian like it was and how she was able and not afraid to talk about very specific local um, local events and extrapolate out to, to form a, a larger thesis. Um, and I think one of the ways in which I've built on that idea is to think of infrastructural space, in particular the telegraph station, as somewhere that existed as both a local space and a trans-regional or trans-imperial and transnational space. So um, thinking of the telegraph station as a micro-transnational space, I think will help me develop this idea going forward. Um, another session uh, which I, I got a lot out of was the one on Michel Foucault. Um, and I found this session very interesting because it raised a lot of difference in our, in our group between how we might approach history um, and understand Foucault's work. But for me in particular, the, the, uh, Foucault's concept of discipline, power, and the body, I think are things that I can build on. Um, in particular, conceptualizing power, not as a top-down phenomena, but something that is dispersed and not always a negative force, but something that can be positive as well. Um, with my own research, I'm thinking particularly of the ways in which a certain type of subjectivity or the idea of an individual or a community is produced through processes of power um, and in the department itself, how the idea of the telegraph signaler or the worker was produced through some of these methods and these techniques. The other concept, the body, I think is important because um, we often, um, in, as historians, I think ignore some of the uh, minutiae involved in um, some of the daily practices of how individuals might have behaved in a bodily form. So how they might have moved through spaces or um, acted in, in, in certain places in relation to their body. And I think uh, what Foucault's work shows us on the body is how power and the body have this kind of relationship in which one informs the other. Um, and in particular, how labor might imprint itself upon the body and how um, we, I can use labor or the idea of labor imprinting itself on the body to look at processes of power and labor beyond a kind of traditional way of analyzing it. But no grand narrative. It's all, all about the individual, if, if I recall from our, our session. I think I, I, I would push back against the idea of, of a grand narrative. Um, and I think that's one thing that Foucault's keen to stress. But 
I wouldn't necessarily say it's all about the individual. I would, um, I, I, I think what, what Foucault was trying to do and what I try to do in my work is look at how power wasn't just something um, from above, something uh, pushed down to the lower ranks, as it were, but it had a much wider effect onto individuals and looking at individuals as a kind of model in which we can extrapolate and look at wider phenomena. So more butterfly than rule? I think I think there's a different type of relationship going on between the butterfly and the raw. Rather than seeing them as separate, I think there's more of a interaction going on. Sebastian, thank you. Um, Chloe Emmert, um, of all of us who have been looking at methodology and historiography in recent months, you, perhaps more than any of us, uh, had a clearer idea of what the past was, given that you were or are uh, an archaeologist. I don't know if you ever, can ever stop being an archaeologist. Um, perhaps it's in your, your DNA now. Um, the, the study of the things that you dig up is at the very core, the very essence, if you will, of archaeology. Given some of the, the, the somewhat ethereal philosophical discourses on history that we have uh, explored over the last few months, um, do you think that there is still a place for material culture, the, 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 the study of things um, in, in, the, in the study of history? Uh, thank you, John. And yes, I think there absolutely is. I think it's interesting because my work sort of, well, I started off as an archaeologist. That was my BA and MA. And now I'm doing the history of archaeology. So I feel like there's these two worlds that are coming together. And it's, it's certainly been very interesting for me to see how historians have approached material culture or perhaps more interestingly how they've avoided approaching material culture which it's a completely flips my sort of experience being an archaeologist where we stray away from texts often because we're not comfortable i think the material culture is incredibly important as it offers that tangible link to the past and particularly as my work looks at sort of British archaeology in Palestine, particularly during the Mandate era and how archaeology was used politically to make a point that the British were so civilised and progressive that they took care of this history and they preserved it for the world. And that involves a sort of direct relationship with the material remains and particularly with biblical archaeology, which is what the vast majority of archaeology in Palestine was focused on. It's always this direct relationship with the Bible, which they were using as textual evidence in many cases. And the archaeology was sort of used to try and not just prove the text, but sort of to create this physical link often related to sort of spiritual and religious experiences that to if you knew Palestine, if you experienced Palestine and the landscape and the history and you could visit these ruins or you could see the pots that people from biblical times used every day, you could have this direct connection to the past and through that you could experience your faith in a stronger way. I think 
And also the texts themselves are also material culture, even when we sort of look at old newspapers or archives, particularly when you, though it's been hard this last year, when you get into the physical archives and you see sort of, has this letter been typed up very neatly on nice paper? Is it a scribbled note? Has someone crossed things out? And there's that sort of I think analysis is halfway between material culture and text, but I think can tell us quite a lot about sort of what was going on and what people deemed important. Chloe, I was, I was going to ask you about about the how one treats um, you know, documents, um, which you, you you yourself uh, you say that you know, sometimes documents are as valid as as a pot. Uh, as uh, uh, an artifact uh, dug up, um, sometimes a, a document can be the artifact. I and mean, if we go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, for example, they are both document and artifact. Um, do you draw a distinction between the two? I'm not sure I do. <laughs> Perhaps others in the discipline do, though. And I think. This is coming back to a chapter I made us all read for the interdisciplinary session. It was on sort of actually on visual media and archaeology, but there was a sentence saying that to keep the archive alive, you have to work on it, that you can't just sort of deposit these texts here, that, you know, to preserve them, you need to do something, otherwise they'll just disintegrate into nothingness. I think it's that idea of the constant working on the past and the material remains of the past that inform our ideas. That's all been really interesting. Um, all of you are in some way historians. I mean, Sebastian, you, you read history at university. Mandy, you did. Uh, Chloe, you're a, an archaeologist, and I'm the only um, non Historian, I think my, the only history qualification I have is an, an O level uh, in history. And in fact, if what we've been speaking about around this this, this table to most people who are not historians, uh, it would be rather alien to them because for them, history is all about uh, you know events happening, dates, times. The philosophical aspect um, is 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 often. Um, not thought about uh, by uh, by people who, when you ask them what is history, you, they won't even think about the philosophical aspects. And in my own research, where um, I'm studying the social and cultural history of super yachts, where there is virtually no academic work on it at all, I'm starting from scratch, um, and I'm I'm studying something which is. Um, some people would not even consider to be history because it is still happening. And the oral history testimonies that I am uh, taking right now are of people who are active participants uh, in, in an, an activity that is ongoing. So is it even history? It is, you know, we're talking about the present and in, and in the way that I select um, the actors who participate in my own research, um, are they even uh, really historical figures? I mean, Sebastian, if 
if you could go back in time, if we could jump into this this mythical time machine um, and interview the uh, the uh, telegraph operators, would you be interview? You know, how would you select them, for heaven's sake? Yeah, that's um, that's something I haven't really thought about, but um, I think one of the ways I could probably relate to what you were saying is while uh, the telegraph is not used now, um, much of the infrastructure that was laid in the 19th century is still in operation in the sense that the routes and the landing points in which the telegraph um, uh, had their stations and, and uh, relay machinery is the same place that the internet cables now run and the fiber optic cables run. And so there is this kind of overlap in, in, in my research uh, where telecommunications networks have this kind of debris from the past, which is still in the present. And it's, it's the questions that you raise about uh, where does history kind of end? But it's, I mean, I mean, Mandy, where I'm selecting, I'm physically selecting who's going to be my my uh, interviewee, who's going to give my testimony. You, you, in a sense, the, the the shadows of that kind of testimony from in your period. You, know, you, which voices do you get to hear? I mean, you you talked about that wonderful image of that that photograph, um, but. Do you ever are you able to hear those individual voices? Um, that's a, a really good question. Um, it's much easier to hear the voices, metaphorically speaking, of the activists because um, there are diaries, there are newspaper reports. Um, I've even managed to track down living relatives of of, of these women and have um, interviewed have interviewed them, which have given another perspective, albeit one that you need to think about really carefully because this is testimony that's passed down through generations within the family. Um, so those women are not so difficult to, to find out about. Where I am really keen to get voices are those women who um, were not actively involved, but in some way were playing a part in this women's movement. I would love to get the voices of those um, newly trained secretaries and clerks who were for the first time women commuting to central London, women of independent means, those are much tougher to track down. I've, I've got um, glimpses of them through newspaper correspondence um, and I'm hoping to find diaries. Um, but uh, yeah, much, much harder to find those women in the shadows. But I mean, in the... the the, the piece uh, that I that I read on on, on oral history and one of the, the the difficulties that we have is you know, the how relevant and you know, we're so let me say that again we're directed towards individuals because they leave things behind Absolutely. for us to look at Sebastian yeah I think that's particularly pertinent in any study of imperialism or in imperial colonial environments because you have the primary sources um, for the most part are in English or in the language of, of the authority that's in that place. So to get the sources and the voices of the people who actually uh, kind of live there and, and um, 
uh, yeah, were, were citizens of these places is extremely difficult. And I think maybe Chloe can relate it with her work on Palestine. Yeah, I've had exactly the same problem. I'm, you're always accessing people's voices through another channel, mostly the sort of official, either Ottoman or British. And I think even in some cases, when things have been written in Arabic, you can see from the handwriting that it's been everyone, different people have sent letters all in the same handwriting. And I assume it's because perhaps people couldn't read or write very well and they dictated their letters to someone in the village who would write it down and then it would get sent off. And then you end up with the translation in English in the arc. So you have all these layers, which it's trying to tease out these individual stories is very hard and in a sense i mean what what's quite interesting about what you've all just said is that we're we're very attuned to filtering out propaganda um especially from the 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 nazi period um or 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 you know, any uh, dictatorial regime you you look at that material and say well there's a there's a political intent here but when we talk about empire, when we talk about the suffrage movement, when we talk about Palestine, um, we sometimes try and we, we often um, forget that there was a, a political intent to everything that was being written, that it was filtered for a political reason. And just because it's in the English language or uh, a product of the British Empire doesn't mean that it was... Uh, benevolent, benevolent, because often the British Empire is, is portrayed as being benevolent, certainly in this country. Um, and we have to be mindful of, of, of the quality of that, whether it's you know, the, the empire in, 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 in Iran or, or whether it's you know, how the women's suffrage movement was dealt with. I think that's a really important point, John. And um, one of the um, opportunities I suppose my study gives me is that whereas a lot of the um, information about the suffrage movement has been written by activists, been written by former suffragettes or suffragettes, um, and that's obviously going to have a particular bias. They were in the thick of it, as it were. What also remains um, is... The, 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 this is where the materiality comes in. So I've walked a lot of the streets of Lewisham and Greenwich and Woolwich and Deptford, so I can see where these women lived, and fortunately a lot of those properties still remain. And then you can start looking at census returns and you can see who exactly were these people and, and to some extent try and piece together some of the pieces of the jigsaw, which the narrative is not going to give you because it's written through a particular prism. I mean, history is essentially a jigsaw, and I'm reminded of E.H. Carr's evocation uh, to distance ourselves from the common sense view of history. I mean, history, yes, is a body of ascertained facts, and the historian, as Carr says, is collecting the facts as if they were so, so much fish on a fishmonger's slab which the historian collects, cooks, and serves them in whatever style appeals to that historian. The point is that there is no single style of serving fish. There is no single style of approaching history. 
I hope you've enjoyed this little discourse on historical methodology and historiography. This has been John Leonida, Chloe Emmett, Sebastian Rose, and Mandy Barry, all PhD researchers at the University of Greenwich. Thank you for listening.